Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. On this episode, we are talking about the other movie that also cemented my love of film when I was a young child, and that's Ghostbusters. Of course, the first one was Back to the Future, even though Ghostbusters actually was before, so it was kind of like they were kind of neck and neck. To me, the Ghostbusters and Back to the Future are the two movies that shaped my whole childhood in a lot of respects, so I'm very excited to talk about this one. And I've got Rebecca on with me, who has not been on forever. So it's just Rebecca. For so I, long. <laughs> I know. I know. Since our Regency <laughs> era. So this will be fun. You know, I love having big panels, but sometimes I really love the intimacy of two and uh, just one other person because it's a lot more conversational. So I think this will be a good conversation. But if you don't know yes. what Ghostbusters is, which... <laughs> I don't know what Ghostbusters is, but <laughs> Ghostbusters is a 1984 American supernatural comedy film directed and produced by Ivan Reitman and written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. It stars Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and they play Peter Venkman, Ray Stance, and Egon Spangler, three eccentric parapsychologists who start a ghost catching business in New York City. It also stars Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis and features Annie Potts, William Atherton, and Ernie Hudson in supporting roles. And, of course, Ernie Hudson's character becomes the fourth Ghostbuster. Fourth Ghostbuster. So. Winston Zeddemore. <laughs> yes. And uh, Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis have these amazing apartments in New York City. I know. How is she? I, I want to know how much, if you play... For the New York Symphony Orchestra, I would love to know what you're making or what you would have made in about 1984, <laughs> because I want to know how Sigourney Weaver affords that apartment. I know it, it does. It makes it, <laughs> it's the most illogical thing about this movie. More it illogical is. than a giant Stay Puff Marshmallow Man is this. No, that I buy. <laughs> yeah. I, I buy the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Yeah, the Sigourney yeah. Weaver apartment. No. <laughs> That is also one of the most 80s decorated apartments it's to true. ever 80s. It's true. <laughs> Those but I remember, couches. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, though, and I also had a fascination with New York City. So oh, yeah. I remember watching this as a kid and going, oh, my gosh, I want that apartment. When I move to New York City when I'm older, I'm going to get that apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I that thought that before. was an average New York apartment. Oh, Yeah. Up. As of a child course. in the 80s, I was like, this is an av- this is how all New Yorkers live. Like this. Yes, yes. Very, very accurate. <laughs> so just a couple of little facts on this. Ackroyd conceived Ghostbusters based on his own fascination with spirituality. And it was supposed to be a project starring himself and John Belushi, in which they would venture through time and space battling supernatural threats. But following Belushi's death in 1982 and with Aykroyd's concept deemed financially 
impractical, Ramis was hired to help rewrite the script to set it in New York City and make it more realistic, except for the apartment. <laughs> I'm adding that in. <laughs> it was the first comedy film to employ expensive special effects and Columbia Pictures, concerned about its relatively high $25 to $30 million budget, had little faith in its box office potential. But of course, you know, it went out and it grossed like, uh, it earned $282.2 million during mm -hmm. its initial theatrical run, making it the second highest grossing film of 1984. And so I think it was the highest grossing comedy film until Home Alone came along in 1991. Yeah, yeah. And the, the highest, well, the highest grossing film could also be called kind of a comedy of 1984 was uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, and yes. Then, and yeah. that's why they couldn't get Eddie Murphy to play Winston Zedmore. Yeah. Because yeah. Eddie Murphy took the role for Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. And some, Fats. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at some of these movies and I'm like, these are movies eventually we will cover that were like in the top 10. Like you've got that. You've got Indiana Jones was number three and the Temple of Doom was number three. Uh, Gremlins was number four. The Karate yes. Kid, number five. Police Academy, number six. Footloose, seven. Romancing the Stone, eight. Star Trek, three, The Search for Spock. We will not be covering that on this show. Just as a spoiler. I don't think we will ever cover that. It was nine. I have traumatic memories of that movie. I've, I've never I seen cried. it, but I'm not a Star Trek person. But <laughs> And number I 10 was the first Terminator movie. Yeah, you, you cried a lot. I've actually it. never seen Terminator. You've never I'm seen back. Terminator? Have you ever seen I've never seen the first Terminator, Terminator movie. I've never seen Terminator 2. I saw... One of the ones that was out in a the theater when I was in college with a obviously now ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and so I, there's a lot that I, I didn't understand watching that movie. Because I was like, I've never seen any of the Terminator movies. The second one is so good. And I remember it scaring the crap out of me as a kid not, not or a teenager. because Not because it was like a horror film, but because of uh, certain things that are in the second one. Huh, oh, interesting. Yes. I don't know why I'm all shocked by this, but uh, it's one of <laughs> every time I have waited for it to, I think it's been on streaming at some point and I missed it, but I keep telling people, I'm like, I, if somebody can give me a copy, I will watch it. I am not opposed to watching it. I just somehow missed it in the last 38 <laughs> years of my life. I don't know how. Well, someday, someday you'll watch it. Someday. <laughs> if you can get Rebecca Jacobson a copy of The Terminator. Yeah, or if it's streaming. I don't know if it's streaming it's anywhere. Streaming anywhere. I'm sure it's got to be streaming somewhere. But, but, but anyway, we will get back to Ghostbusters in just a second. But first, I want to know, Rebecca, what are you also into right now in pop culture? I was going to, I was initially going to come to this podcast recording and talk about my obsession with the trash television series love is blind <laughs> because <laughs> that has been my my garbage go-to tv for the last couple months but actually i have an, a new favorite movie that i'm going to start telling everybody about that i watched last night on shutter one of our favorite streams <laughs> streaming services here on the podcast mm -hmm. it is a french uh action thriller movie called revenge oh yes yes mm -hmm. so good yes i saw it for the first time last night and i was just mind blown i'm amazed and now i'm recommending this movie to all of my friends <laughs> it's like this is amazing i love it so much 
And for those of you who are worried that because it's on a horror streaming service that it's going to be like too scary for you, I would say that if you can handle the amount of blood in, say, a Tarantino movie, you'd probably be able to handle revenge. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good clarification because there is a lot of and and it, there is um, you know trigger warning for sexual assault for that movie yes. too. Yes, that's that's big a trigger big, warning, big thing. But yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, I remember. Oh, I think I watched that like a year or so ago. But yep, that's that's so good. good. And there's what another two. Well, I'm still gonna keep singing the praises of Barbarian. So please go watch that movie. One of the best, just amazing horror movie. Anyway. Um, but I also on Shutter is they have the 101 scariest moments and yes. I've only watched the first episode so I haven't so I know I'm behind but so that's fun just to watch and see because sometimes some of the moments they put on there I might can't come up with an example right now but are not as scary to me as maybe to other people so <laughs> I think everybody has different things that scare them oh, and sure. them in different ways so. So yeah, so we both have Shutter recommendations. I haven't been able to watch Shutter much because everything I watch is usually for the podcast. So unless <laughs> it's on there, I you know. <laughs> so. Okay, so let's get into Ghostbusters a little deeper and our feelings on it and the characters. So first, I want to know: Do you have any like special memories of seeing this for the first time? Because I'm assuming, because you're a little younger than me, that you did not see this in the theater. Correct. I did not see this in the theater because it arrived in theaters the same year that I arrived on planet Earth. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to make you feel old. It's, it's okay. <laughs> Meg made me feel old on Back to the Future. So. <laughs> this is also the why 1984 was such a great year. I mean, Ghostbusters, Amadeus, there's a lot of great music that came out. And, and I arrived. <laughs> so, I mean, it was a great year, everybody. Um, no, but... This is one of the like seminal films, like formative films of my childhood. Like, absolutely. I, I'm trying to remember really a time before I knew about Ghostbusters. So I'm trying to remember like exactly the first time I watched it. It definitely was a home VHS rental. And we were immediately obsessed. Me and all three of my siblings. Uh, we like absolutely adored it and I, I think my parents took that like pg rating to heart because <laughs> there were a lot of jokes in that that i did not get until i watched it like was watching it again as a teenager and things that i was like because i remember thinking it was just funny that the ghost in raymond's dream was pulling down his pants and i did not understand what was happening in that scene and i think my parents were happy to keep it that way but I remember it was, oh gosh, it was such a um, such a big like part of my childhood, including the fact that my first dance recital, first and only dance recital that I had, one of our dance numbers was to the Ghostbusters theme song. And <laughs> wow. we had like, they gave us like little toy like blasters, like mm -hmm. little squirt guns. And it was like, I remember like lift the blaster and tap and tap. And then they like put a little like ghost on a string, like in the middle of the stage, and they're like, chase the ghost. <laughs> During the... oh, <laughs> so this is this is one of my favorite films of all time. That's why when I saw that you wanted to do an episode about it, I was like, yes, I am in. <laughs> I don't care what I've got to cancel to talk about Ghostbusters. <laughs> Have you heard the word of the Ghostbusters? I 
so I like as far as like watching this as a kid, I remember being scared by parts of it, but also finding it really funny and like having my first sort of like shipping moments between like Janine and Egon, like wanting them to like going like they gotta get together. And then kind of getting to the end of the movie and being like, yeah. are they together? Are <laughs> they not? Will Janine and Egon make it? <laughs> Maybe. It was scary enough. It was a movie that when I was a kid, and I'm trying to think of when I would have first seen it. I probably was maybe seven or eight. That sounds like about the right age. I remember being scared enough by the scary parts that I felt like I was watching a real grown-up movie. Like this wasn't a kid's movie, but I was not so scared that I was like going to go hide behind the couch or something. It didn't like give me nightmares or anything like that. My siblings and I definitely spent a lot of time then asking for Ghostbusters toys because those were around in the late 80s and early 90s. There was a cartoon, mm -hmm. uh, which we also watched. at had a few of the comics. We had the Ghostbusters firehouse with the slime that came down <laughs> like through the grate in the top. We would play with our backpacks as proton packs. And so we would pretend to chase, like chase ghosts around the house. And I think it's actually kind of funny that I've learned now as an adult that this sort of surprised the filmmakers that kids really loved Ghostbusters because it wasn't yeah. a, it was a kid's movie at all. But it became like very much a kid's. The marketing yeah. just became totally aimed at kids. Oh, absolutely. And we went for it hook, line, and sinker. I remember the my, my brother one year for his birthday got one of the toy proton packs with the trap. And I was like, I am so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> But he would like, uh, yeah, run around with it in the house. His favorite was Egon. I think Egon was kind of all of our favorites for a while. As an adult, I really love Ray. I appreciate Ray's enthusiasm and zest for life. I remember thinking even as a kid that Peter Menkman was kind of a dick. He is, <laughs> I don't but think he I was kind of my favorite when I was a kid, I will be honest. But he, I mean, he is kind of a dick, but... <laughs> He's kind of a dick, but... You know, but he knows he's, he's kind, kind of, of a good dick. dick. The movie knows he's a dick. It's not. <laughs> I mean, true. it opens with him being, you know, the first scene with him is he's being a total dick. He is being a total <laughs> he's dick. Being a little misogynistic asshole. <laughs> Another thing that I didn't really understand as a kid, like, I was like, but she got it wrong. Like, because the, the first scene that you see with Fankman yes. in the movie, and I went and rewatched it um, because it's on Hulu right now, um, mm -hmm. as is the second movie which is a personal favorite of mine and a movie that terrified my brother of the bathtub for several months. <laughs> that was a whole nother issue in our house trying to explain that, no, that was a movie. Pink slime is not going to come out of the bathtub and take you away. Small child. <laughs> but anyway, no, I remember like that first scene that you, you meet Venkman in the movie, he is doing like, uh, like psychic yeah, psychic like test, test thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like giving the one of the test subjects, the dude, electric shocks and the pretty blonde, he's telling her that she's gotten the card right every time when she has absolutely no idea what it is. Whereas the guy actually gets one or two of them right. Mm -hmm. And I think I can't remember if he gets all three right, but he gets at least a couple of them right. And I remember going, but he got it right. Why is he getting a shock? Why isn't he shocking the lady? Why? 
why is he mad at Raymond for coming in to tell him about a ghost? Shouldn't he be excited about the ghosts? <laughs> why doesn't he care about the ghosts as much as I do? Things that went over my head as a child that I think my parents were grateful went over my head as a child that you as an adult can appreciate watching the movie. <laughs> no, I think that's true of a lot of these movies when you watch them, when you watch them as a kid. Like the whole, when you're talking about with, with Raymond and the ghost pulling his pants down. When I was watching this last Sunday, I was like, oh my gosh, how did I totally space this scene? I'm like, this is right? like, this is so not a kid's. This is basically, it's it's almost veering on like sexual assault in a way too. I mean, right? it's like, it's so, I'm like, this is bizarre. But it's Trigger like warning, the there's future. paranormal sexual assault yeah. in this movie. <laughs> But just like, I mean, Back to the Future has a lot of stuff that you're like, what the hell? But the 80s, yeah. the 80s actually were like that. A lot of movies that were, that kids loved had stuff that you look back and you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much we love these. Because this was, I saw this in the theater. So okay. I actually got the theater experience. And this was a movie was that, that I begged my mom to let me see more than once. I was obsessed with this one. And it was just, like I said, this and Back to the Future, it was like sitting there. And since I already loved fantasy worlds and being like and acting and all that stuff, it was like, whoa, this is what you can do with a film. And I already loved horror at a very young age. Like I said, I watched horror. My babysitter showed it to me when I was a kid. I know I shouldn't have like Polter Poltergeist was the first one I saw. <laughs> but so... Anything involving ghosts, too. I was really into the supernatural. I had a lot of supernatural experiences when I was a little kid. So that intrigued me, too. I mean, I don't think of – nothing in this movie really to me is scary, except for I think when I was a little kid, the very first one in the library is kind yes. of freaky. When you're little, it's really kind of freaky. But other than that, nothing is really too scary in this. That kind of freaked just, me out I think as a that's, kid. Yeah, I think that's why – Plus, it's just kind of silly. Slimer is silly. It's Slimer just like, silly. you know, I mean, the big Stay puff Marshmallow Man is silly. So, But it appeals to you as a child. And like in Stranger Things, you know how all the boys dress up oh, yeah. as Ghostbusters? That was the way it was. Everybody loved it. I mean, I think there was even like cereal. There was, of course, oh, McDonald's yes. was toys. There was like everything you could imagine. I see Ecto Cooler. Yes. <laughs> trading yes. cards. Trading cards. Yes. Which, you go to 5280 here in Colorado, if you're in Colorado, um, and I'm sure other 80 stores, other places, you can find some Ghostbuster stuff still there. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's everywhere. But, yeah, it was it's just one of those that's like shows you the magic of film and movies and escapism and entertainment and stuff. And And like I said, I was obsessed with New York City when I was a little kid. And then it became kind of L.A. more than New York or Hollywood, I should say. But I love New York City. I had like a shirt that said New York City. And I didn't go to New York City until I was like in my 20s for the first time. <laughs> but I loved it. I was obsessed with the idea of it. So that was another reason I loved this movie. So I was like, oh, my gosh, New York City is so cool. All the cool things that happen there. And it's a huge city. And it's just like bustling and and you know, and you get to live in cool apartments. <laughs> yes, great couches. Yes, that are decorated. Yes, that are decorated so nicely. And I loved the you know the old firehouse look for oh, where the, the ghost old firehouse were. is iconic. Yes, and I actually grew up 
in a neighborhood that they had like there was an it turned they turned it into a house later but there was an old firehouse on the corner and it and it was reminded me so much of that so it was kind of like wow so there's a little bit of the ghostbusters here in my neighborhood <laughs> and i lived in a very haunted area of denver so it was like it was like playing into everything i loved about childhood and my childhood and i think god bless parents from back then because <laughs> between this and back to the future and then you had gremlins later and then a oh, bunch yeah. of other things gremlins. i think which came out the same year as this but i think it was like parents were having to go to these kind of movies like over and over <laughs> again and just getting sick and tired of it but of course a lot of times you'd be like dropped off sometimes later when you got older because you know we were the latchkey generation so <laughs> yeah this this was a like i guess we're renting ghostbusters again from the home mm -hmm. video place down the street because we're like yeah ghostbusters <laughs> We yeah. want more Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, once, you know, I know some listeners have no idea what the experience is like to be watching something on a VHS, not a DVD, but a VHS. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, where hopefully there won't be any like glitches or recording movies off of the TV that you could watch later, which is what I did all the time. I had so many VHS wow. tapes. And I know this was one of the movies where I had it on there with a few others. And so you could just watch it anytime and you recorded it off the TV because you would pull off the tab. Uh, yes. Pull off the tab when you were done recording. And then if you wanted to record over it, you could put the tape over the little tab. Yes. I remember those. I remember those. I mean, it was totally you weren't supposed work. to do it. Like they would always say, don't record this. But hey. But we did. <laughs> I'm still bummed one day I got rid of all of my VHSs because I'm like, I'm never going to be able to play these because I don't have a VCR. And I'm still bummed I did that. But yeah, yeah. So this was definitely one oh, of those. No. And and it's still, this movie still holds up today. It does. It yeah. absolutely holds up. I just watched it and I'm like, okay, there are some of the special effects that have not aged quite as well. When the terror yeah. dog, which... I have now learned as an adult, that's what they are referred to in the fandom, the terror dogs. <laughs> I always thought of them as the big, mean, scary, evil dogs, but <laughs> I suppose that's close enough. When it comes bursting out of the apartment, it's, it's like very obvious. It's not actually it's true. It's early, early animation effects, <laughs> but there's a lot of things like the, like there's a lot of the effects that actually are really good. Like, you know, the blasting like holes through the walls with the proton packs when they have to chase down what is now known as Slimer. He did not officially get that name until yeah. the real Ghostbusters <laughs> cartoon. Yes. <laughs> but who is supposed to be the ghost of John Belushi? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that yeah. part, but that yeah. that would have been, uh, I that's I, that just, I don't know. That just kind of feels creepy and weird to me Isn't for it? some reason. That's off-putting. But <laughs> to me, he's always Slimer. Yes. Um, and will always be Slimer. So I know that he has a, another name that he's referred to in the script, but I know that the cast always thought of him as the ghost of John Belushi. That's was kind of the inspiration, especially his character from Animal House. Hence the eating and the mm -hmm. drinking a lot, the very slovenly. <laughs> gluttonous. Uh, gluttonous, yes. That's the word I'm looking for. All right. <laughs> uh, Incidentally, I love that scene from the movie when they get their first real call and 
like the excitement in Janine's face when they finally have a job that they're called for. Mm -hmm. She goes, we got one! (laughs) And hits the bell. And they get in. (laughs) I still love that they're in the elevator. And it's like, why why do I have to be nervous about each one of us is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back? (laughs) It's much beyond. And they realize that they don't actually have any idea what they're doing. But I think well, I mean, no the thing, like, how could they have no know what they're doing? Yeah. It's not, I mean, they're just yeah. it's not like this is something that's like a proven. I mean, yes, you had mediums and you had the Warrens who were scam artists, and you had you you had stuff like that, but you didn't really have like this. I so. caught a ghost. That's yeah. kind of a new idea. <laughs> like catching yeah. a ghost, like they were exterminators. And yes. I knew that that like kind of, yeah, again, coming to the realization when I'm a little bit older, like, oh, yeah, they're like exterminators. They're like exterminators for ghosts. Well, their outfits are very reminiscent yeah. of what you would see an exterminator dressed as. So, yeah. Or like even a like suit. Yeah. Or even like a painter. <laughs> yeah. It's, they're <laughs> this like kind of almost manual labor type job that they just, they just destroy everything. And I always kind of wondered if all of their jobs after that involved as much destruction or I wonder if they got better about catching the ghosts and therefore didn't cause as much damage. Well, you'd hope they would. (laughs) We don't know. Like we see the like little media blitz afterwards when they become really like famous and Mm -hmm. they're just, you know, walking out of, you know, basement apartments, garden level apartments in New York city with the steaming trap and, they're like, but they're still like, they come in like covered with slime and stuff. So, and talk yeah. about how like they've been working overtime and I'm not going to get any sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Having> nightmares. <laughs> or having <laughs> sex dreams, I guess, about ghosts. <laughs> well, let's talk about um, the characters because I think, you know, this doesn't work without these characters no matter who your favorite is or not and without the cast of course that plays them so we'll start with peter vankman of course played by bill murray so and bill murray yes one and only bill Murray. this is a very bill murray role i want to say like nobody else in the world could play this role the way it's played i don't think so i know you said this is this is your least favorite of them is that correct probably like uh, okay if I met the Ghostbusters in real life, <laughs> who, who would I leave like the dinner with going, God, what a dick. <laughs> and it would probably be Peter Bankman. Yeah. I, I do have a love for, for Peter Bankman though, because, and it's because of Bill Murray. I know originally their plan was to cast John Belushi for this role. And I just, I cannot picture John Belushi playing this. Because Bill Murray is able to bring just enough, to, he's just sleazy enough that I'm like, okay, you're you're the hustler in this group. But you are also like, it's good that you're the hustler because the other two wouldn't be able to make a business out of this without you. So you have a purpose. He's just sleazy enough that you're like, you're kind of a dick, but he doesn't actually push it too far. Like, yeah. there is like... I find that like rewatching this again many times as an adult, especially considering some of the portrayals of men pursuing women that we got in 80s movies, he 
he certainly like shoots his shot <laughs> with Dana. He's like, I'm going to take you out to dinner. Like, you're going to love me by the end of this. And she's like, uh-huh. Bye. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> like, oh, God, you're hitting on me. But he doesn't, like, she does agree to go out with him. He certainly is persistent. But when she is possessed, he he has the, at least, like, eventually gains some restraint to say, oh, okay. No, 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 no. Like, at first he's like, oh, we doing this. Oh, no we should not do this. You are possessed. A side note, I caught while I was watching this recently, he says that he's given her Thorazine, which uh -huh. is a date rape drug. Well, Thorazine and is also, it can also, it's also used a lot in like, okay. um, in psych, when you're having a psychotic episode okay. or if you're very like, if, if you can't, calm down or you can't sleep or stuff like that so it's not okay it's it's medically it is used to calm down people when they're like okay calm down so i was just like wait a minute where did he get this why does he have it on him when he was coming to meet dana for a date did did dana have this somewhere in her apartment that'd it be, raised a lot of good. questions for me <laughs> but i no, suddenly have a lot of questions normal thing that people do use that okay. that hospitals will use i'm so <laughs> okay but tell me your thoughts on dr bankman who as we learned from the very beginning of the movie is a poor scientist he is yes i mean He's you know I, I, he, he, he is a jerk and i do i do acknowledge that He's my favorite, though. He always was my favorite. And I think it's just because of Bill Murray. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I would have liked the character as much if it was played by somebody else. But he Bill Murray tends to play characters like this where they are kind of smarmy. They're kind of slimy. They're kind of like you wouldn't want to date them. Hustlers. But well, yeah, but then they've got charm. They're also really charming. And he's got that. So they he knows how to use humor and how to um, kind of, kind of make, not really make fun of himself, but kind of laugh things off and do little jokey things. And it's not like every other guy that was around Dana were really stellar guys. Like the no. other guy that she, the other musician is a real douchebag. So it's he not is. like, it's he's just like she, he's so, oh, he's so like, oh, yuck. That's that pretentious yeah the pretentiousness and then you have lewis tully who's pursuing her as yes. well who's yes. oh <laughs> yes yes but you did have that was a trend in 80s movies where it was very much a guy would pursue a girl and it wouldn't matter how many times she said no and it was really cute and it was mm -hmm. kind of bad that that happened a lot but it is to his credit and to the writer's credit more than anything to the right to not have him take advantage of the situation with Dana and to know that that's not her and she's not in her right frame of mind and to know he shouldn't take advantage of that is actually really pretty amazing for that time period and for 80s films in general. And especially when you had any kind, I don't consider him the nerd when he's supposed to be the more together hotter hotter one of the I three i don't know like the less geeky one of the three <laughs> let's take that with a very big grain of salt but i think that's what, that, what they're trying to say i mean yeah. compared to like that he's supposed to be that but i love the character 
And I like how he, you know, usually when you see scientists in any movie in the 80s or in any time, really, they're always really a lot like Egon more than anything. Yeah. And so seeing a character that is a scientist really is real smart, even though he uses it sometimes to smarmy degrees. Yeah. He's really smart. And so it's nice to see a different interpretation of that character and it not be three people that were just like Egon. That would have been, I think, kind of annoying only because it's just the same old, same old, same old. And I don't think it would have worked as well. You have to have different kinds of characters and different dynamics because then their chemistry together and the way all three of them work together works a little better. I mean, really, I think the way the film is set up, the way it's directed, the way it's written, the way it's handled, it is really the two main people are Peter Venkman and Dana. But Peter Venkman is like the main of the three for sure, the way it's set up. I don't think that was always what was necessarily planned, but that's kind of what happened. And it's probably a lot to do with Bill Murray. And oh, I think and so. Sigourney Weaver too, but Bill Murray oh. more than anything. And but. this was my first introduction to Sigourney Weaver, so I had I was too young to have seen Alien, so I had no idea who she was. Every time I see Sigourney Weaver in something now, I'm like, it's Dana. Mm-hmm. Like, or like, it, she will always be Dana to me in the same way that Harold Ramis has always been Egon. I I think I saw him in Orange County where he has like a bit part in that, and I'm like, Egon. Well, that's, I mean, that's the way it is with a lot of actors is whatever role we first were introduced to them with them that made an impression on us, that yes. will always be what they'll be known as. And sometimes it might be a couple of different roles, mm-hmm. but that'll always be the one that will be like t- up top uh, mind. That's uh, that's always yeah. where I associate them. And so you talked about like the, I think the relationship between all of these characters is so important. And that dynamic is really why it works. Mm-hmm. Any one of these characters on their own is not enough to any one of the four Ghostbusters is not enough to hold up the movie on his own. They just aren't. So, the, and I, I actually read this or I saw this and I like about the film uh, documentary at some point, the way that the writers finally kind of uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman kind of divided the way these characters would work together is Egon is the brains of the Ghostbusters. Raymond is the heart. And Peter is the mouth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And thinking about it that way, I'm like, that absolutely works. And it's why they work together so well. They all play like Ray brings that, that youthful, like excitement and optimism and hope to the team. And I love that. Like, if you catch it, like before they go in to tackle um, Gozer at the end of the movie, the crowds out there, they're like cheering and Peter goes, Ray stands, heart of the Ghostbusters. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> the heart of the Ghostbusters. And there's Peter Venkman being the mouth again. Yep. Well, let's get into Ray then. So yeah, Ray. what are your thoughts on Ray? Oh, Ray. I love Ray. Like I said, I think my favorite as a child, or at least the character that we most glommed onto as children was Egon. And I think that was true for me and my siblings. There was just something about Egon that was just really fascinating to us. But Ray, as I get older I love even more and I think it's because I love that genuine like optimism that he has and I can tell that like now knowing that Dan Aykroyd wrote this because not only of his interest in spiritualism 
but his family's history in spiritualism. I can see that really come through in his performance in this, like, I'm so excited. Like when they find the ghost in the library, he's just so fascinated by everything. Like the books, like the first thing that you see are the books stacked. Mm -hmm. And I remember turning to my mom, like watching this at some point in my childhood and going, why is that scary? (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, well, basically having exactly Peter Venkman's reaction. Like, yeah, it's a really high stack of books. But he's like, <laughs> wow, look at this. Like, this is, mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> one of my favorite parts from him in this first movie ever is when Peter, as the mouth of the group, tries to talk to the ghost in the library and gets nowhere. The ghost just, mm-hmm. and so he's like, I'm out of ideas here. And Ray's like, it's okay. I got this. I have an idea. And he just goes, get her. (laughs) Just tries to like leap at the ghost. And they all run away terrified, but he's still so excited. He's like, guys, we touched the veil. It's like, it's real. This could work. And I'm like, oh, and I, another thing I didn't understand as a kid that I now really appreciate as an adult is they have the scene where they go both Egon and Peter go with Ray to the bank to take out another mortgage on his parents' house. And to like, as a kid, I was like, I don't understand. What's this? This is boring. Fast forward. (laughs) Dumb. (laughs) No ghost here. And as an adult, I'm like, Oh, you've really like taken out a like big financial commitment to this. A third mortgage. And then he gets like back there calculating like the interest alone will be $95,000 for the first year. (laughs) Which watching this now as a homeowner and as an adult this last weekend, I went, oh, God. Also, (laughs) oh, God, that's so sweet that your interest rate was like that low in New York City or is somewhere in New York. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of things weren't very realistic with the financial part (laughs) in New York City, at least. But I think like without that enthusiasm, you don't have me as a kid. I don't know that I would have even gotten as sucked into it because I would have been like, whoa, ghosts. <laughs> I think that's cool. But you, it, without that fascination there, I, I think you I think it would just be purely a business opportunity and it would it would just lose the heart of the movie. Yeah. And Ray, if somebody asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think as I got a bit older and watching the movie, when he, he like turns around to look at Peter and Peter's like, yes. And Ray turns around and in his total naive, like honestness is like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Goes or asks if he's a God. And I'm like, dude, you could lie. <laughs> Say you are. <laughs> Say you are. Just yes. Sure. You're a God. You're a God here. Yes. It's fine. Because I think saying he's the heart is really the perfect way to describe him because he's also really the most earnest and honest person. And he's just really like wants to believe like I think of all of them. He wants to believe the most. And so he's finally getting that opportunity to see that all this stuff he's believed is real. And to him, he's doing like such a great service for the world kind of thing. Yeah. So I think that's the way he views it is. And and that's why with him not lying and saying he is a god, it makes sense with his character because 
<laughs> Peter would have lied in a heartbeat because he doesn't yeah. have that same kind of compass where he's like, oh, whatever, nope. just it's a little lie. <laughs> but for Ray, it's like, no, that's a huge thing. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You're not supposed to lie. And I can't lie to an interdimensional deity. <laughs> They'll know that I'm lying. I think that's the other <laughs> know thing. That I'm lying. Know that I'm lying. And so he also approaches everything with respect as well. He's got this air of respect about him. And he takes everything he's doing so seriously and that earnestness that it makes you as an audience member, you can believe a lot more of what, what's happening because he yeah. believes it. And because in the performance, Dan Aykroyd, of course, believes it. So that yeah. comes through and that makes it a lot more enjoyable to watch and a lot more it makes you as an audience member invested in him and also his relationship with everybody else because he just wants to make everything better and then he also wants to study everything too i think that's the other part right. and he wants to protect people and he it's almost like a way for someone who never would have been noticed to be noticed and kind of like yeah. a hero thing but not in a hero complex like i think Peter could get, but more yeah. in like, a, oh, I'm going to say, but someone else can take the credit for it if they really, really want to. I'm not going to lie. Ray Stans would have <laughs> uh, been a perfect guest on this podcast episode about paranormal experiences. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. He, he would have been on the podcast. He would have been like, let me tell you about the class three vapor that I, I caught. That's Another thing, their, their first real job, when they finally catch Slimer, like, Peter Minkman comes out and goes, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. And Peter, like, not Peter, Ray comes out with the trap. And he's like, we got it. Yeah. This is what we call earnestness. Like, repeating vapor. Real nasty one, too. <laughs> it's just, like, so excited. And it's, yeah, it's as if, if it's like if you're the bug kid in school that yes. was fascinated by bugs and everybody else is creeped out by the centipede that you've caught but you're like look <laughs> it's a centipede did you know that they're poisonous <laughs> yeah it's it, that, hold it. it's that, that's the perfect way to describe it because it is like that it's he's like the person that would, would have played with like all the reptiles when everybody else was yes. there or the tarantulas or stuff like that where it's like Stuff that other people don't find as fascinating, he does. And for different reasons than others might find them fascinating. That's the other thing. But yeah, he's just totally like, this is amazing because I always knew this stuff was real. And now other people are seeing that it's real. And it's also like that affirmation that everything yeah. before was true. So yeah. Well, now let's talk about your your favorite when you were Egon. Was Egon. So let's talk about Egon. So Egon. First of all, how can you not love that name, Egon? <laughs> it is a pretty cool it, name. <laughs> it has. I don't know that it has ever been used since. If it has, if you are an Egon, please tell me. I would like to meet a real life Egon. I'm gonna look that up uh, right now, honestly, because I want to see yes. his name. So. I yeah. knew that Harold Ramis took the name from like a German exchange student that he'd like known in high school or something like he actually knew somebody named Egon but there was something and I it's kind of hard for me like thinking back on it like why was Egon so fascinating to me as a kid I think first of all I was fascinated by science as a child I am not actually a scientist but I work with scientists now and so there was something so very appealing to characters like him and Spock that could be so very rational in the face of what would otherwise terrify most people and I loved how very meticulous he is about their pursuit of the paranormal. 
because this if if we get into my this is the most conservative like oh, yeah. 80s dream <laughs> of all time i can talk a little bit more about this but he has this true like for for ray this is about belief for peter this is a this is a business opportunity and again this is why the three of them work so well together for egon there is a true science and meticulousness to this and i think that's part of what appealed to me is i'm like yes we could study this and look at how like he's facing a ghost and like he might be afraid but he's also like i have collected data <laughs> like i will collect like that like when this the critical moment where peter Rinkman gets slimed by slimer and he goes he slimed me and he's like he had contact he got slimed <laughs> and ray like and uh egon on the other end just goes that's great save some for me and they're like yes that is a scientist who's like cool you okay buddy collect a sample we need to study that <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I love that he was the one who came up with like the proton packs and how they would work. Like that's really him and Ray, like working together to like figure out would this work? Is this going to like, will this trap a ghost? The Twinkie speech, still one of my favorites in any movie when he like, he compares the spiritual psychic, like kinetic energy yeah. of the city as this Twinkie. It's like, now imagine Twinkie. It's <laughs> this big. That's, that's a big Twinkie. <laughs> <laughs> there was something about that that level-headedness like scientific approach to the paranormal that i just loved and i was like yes i am here for it i am here for you egon <laughs> well, go publish a paper <laughs> well you know there is a hip-hop artist named egon is there yes and there was an Austrian painter named Egarn Scheele. I don't know. But those were the ones that really... And then, of course, this Egon came up. So that, so when I did Egon, it was just... So there are some other ones out there. But yeah, it looks like, you know, this is... not a popular name. No, no. Which, <laughs> shocker. Um, <laughs> if you've considered naming your baby Egon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't have much more to add. I will say, you know, when I was younger, I will say Egon was probably my least favorite. So I'm sorry, Rebecca. I think it was just who I was as a kid. It doesn't mean I didn't like Egon, but he was my least, <laughs> my least favorite. But Egon is definitely the more logical one who's thinking more about the, you know, the stuff behind the logic behind it, the science behind it, and wants to study it in a very different ray, way than, say, Ray does. And yeah. he doesn't care as much about the financial aspect of it. It's more uh, proving a scientific theory or proving like what it might actually be or what is creating it or, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like him and Ray work really well in that area. And Peter is kind of like <laughs> the one that just kind of comes in there and can be more of the face of the operation, I yes. think. Because I don't know if they would have been as successful if they didn't have Peter, only they because they wouldn't be as outgoing, especially Egon, but they wouldn't have been able to put the face there that could mm -hmm. have been like, okay, we're definitely going to call on them. The one who can handle the interaction with the customer. Yes. So this is something I didn't notice until I was much older, but when they leave the ballroom after they've caught Slimer and they start talking money with mm -hmm. the hotelier, the hotel owner, manager, whatever he is, 
So watch Egon because Peter looks over at him when he's like, yeah, so for capture and uh, containment, we're going to have to charge. And he looks over at Egon and Egon holds up four fingers. <laughs> he's like subtly trying to tell him like how much you asked for yeah. four grand. And then he's like, plus then there's our proton recharging fees, which might be a special on. And he looks back over at Egon and he's like, he's like that's another grand and i never noticed that as a kid and as an adult i'm like that is so genius this little like yeah yeah like we'll pretend like we've always had these numbers in our head but ask him ask him for more because he's the Egon brain couldn't have done that yeah because yeah Egon's the one who's like actually calculating like mm -hmm. this is like this is how much we should ask for but he knows like if you had ray try to ask for that egon try to ask for that they wouldn't have made that negotiation but peter can do that Peter is yeah. like, yeah, well, good for you. We're having a special this week. It's only going to cost you a thousand. But if you don't want to pay it, we'll just put it right back. Peter is the salesman. And then yeah. Egon and Ray do a lot more of the heavy lifting. So mm -hmm. it's a it's that kind of relation, business relationship. So the whole thing would fall apart if any one of them were removed. So it wouldn't work just like the cast. The cast, yeah. the, the movie wouldn't work if any one of these characters was recast with someone else in this movie i'm not talking about the remake at all we may someday depending on how well this episode does we may end up revisiting all of the ghostbuster movies but i mean just in this one you couldn't have this with another actor in any of these roles or no. you know you couldn't have a different person playing dana you couldn't have nothing like that because they all work mm -hmm. well together and so it's but it's the same thing with Ray and Peter and Egon is they work really well, but then they get so busy and then they get so that they end up bringing in a fourth person who's not even, a, you know, in the same assignment. He's not a scientist. He's, looking He's for not a, job. a salesman. <laughs> no. Yeah. And that's, that's oh, Winston. Winston. So what are your thoughts oh, on Winston? Winston? So I know that the original script actually had a much larger role for Winston and it's when they were writing it for Eddie Murphy. So, and Ernie Hudson has talked about this before in interviews that he was actually really disappointed with the role that he got ultimately because they pared down his parts so much. I still like Winston. I like Winston even more in the second movie personally. And I, like I said, the second movie is still a personal uh, favorite of mine. I know that there's a lot of problems with it, but it's a childhood favorite. Okay. Give me that. <laughs> Just give me that. Um, he is. So, you know, we talked about like the roles that, you know, Peter and Ray and Egon all play. I think that Winston comes in as sort of a fresh outside look to the business. And you don't get to see a lot of that in the first movie. You'd see a little bit more of it, I think, in the second, where one of my favorite lines from him is, if there's a steady paycheck involved, I will believe anything you say. But yeah, he is able, like, he is the one that points out in the movie that he's like, so I've been thinking about like judgment day in the Bible. And he's like, have you ever considered that the reason why we're so busy is because the dead have been rising from the grave. None of the other three had really put that together. They were just like, we're going out on calls. We're catching ghosts. Mm -hmm. we're, we're going, we're going. He was the one who I think, I think this is a critical part for his character to play in like the set of them. He is the one who's coming into this and going, have you ever considered why this is happening? Like, why is this happening now? And I think that's really kind of the final piece that they need to put together with what's happening in Dana's apartment. 
Gozer, all of that kind of starts coalescing around mm -hmm. Winston's realization that like, this is not just a, like, we've hit on a new business model and suddenly people have a, a team to go to, who are you going to call <laughs> to get rid of their ghost? It's, there has been increased activity because of this occurrence. So I, I still love you, Winston. You, you probably deserved a much better part. And I think that you get a lot more to do in the real Ghostbusters cartoon and in the second movie, but heaven bless you, Ernie Hudson. Yes. You're good. Winston said more. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think, I think who Winston, Winston kind of represents is kind of the audience in a way. And it's, yes. And when you have an outside perspective coming into this already well working, somewhat well working machine kind of thing, yeah. and they already are in their own little mind frame and their own thinking of what's really going on. So I think it's important when you have an outsider come in and go, well, what about this? And it's something that might seem really logical or something that they hadn't thought about because they're thinking about it in a more scientific way. And the way that Winston is thinking is not in that same yeah. way. So it's important to have that. And it is very much, he is very much the audience coming in. He represents the audience in this movie for sure. I think of all of the characters. And that's why it's interesting to have him come in midway and yeah. And, and he, he isn't, he is pretty thinly written. I mean, he just is. Uh, and he is. Ernie Hudson is really good, but Ernie Hudson's really good in the role too. And it's also another one that the movie wouldn't work without him there because you could make the argument, well, you don't need a fourth ghostbuster, but you kind of do because you need someone who is not exactly in the same realm and not the same kind of scientist thing you need something someone kind of outside from that so i think that's definitely yeah what i think but. it's true if you anybody who thinks that uh winston is a useless addition to the ghostbusters i defy you to remove him from the movie and see if it still works it just doesn't no this movie was kind of lightning in a bottle it it all just happened to come together with the best possible cast and a good a good script and some great like filmmaking choices to just happen to make this movie that you really can't duplicate no matter how many times they've tried <laughs> yes it's very very true yep yep well let's get to dana barrett played dana! by sigourney weaver so what are your thoughts on dana Dana, Dana was my first introduction to who Sigourney Weaver was as an actress, and she will always be Dana to me. Dana Barrett, I think, is a fantastic, I, I think she is a fantastic character, especially for this movie, because she is not a believer. So she is truly out of her, like, out of her wits. And honestly, the egg popping on the counter thing, like, seeing, uh, seeing Zool in her refrigerator did kind of scare me a little bit as a kid. I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, whoa. But I remember still like, even now I watch the eggs pop out of their shells on the counter and I go, whoa. <laughs> yeah. So, and she has this, she's able to play this part with such a great, um, she has great comedic timing, but she's also able to like, she really brings a lot of Dana to life that she's not she's not a damsel in distress she is certainly scared of what's happening but she's also like pursuing like what is what is zool doing in my ice box <laughs> mm -hmm. um she is 
very independent. I think that it's actually kind of fascinating. Again, like there could have been a route to go with Dana that she was just a complete damsel in distress. She could have fallen right into Peter Minkman's arms and they don't go that route. And I'm so glad that they didn't. And they actually let um, most of the cast I have learned from looking into this and years later, uh, improvised a lot of their lines, including Dana, including Sigourney Weaver. Um, she improvised the line, you're not really a scientist. You're more like a game show host. <laughs> and I still love that line. I'm like, yes, yes, you are more like a game show host. One of my favorite lines from her is when she is possessed. Also, the scariest part of the movie, in my opinion, the claws of the terror dogs popping out of her chair and grabbing her and dragging her into the kitchen. That yeah. scared me as a kid. It still kind of scares me as an adult, like watching it going, <laughs> yeah. oh God, how do they possess Dana? I'm not sure I want to know. I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> that taking on like watching her like transform into one of the terror dogs also was like, oh mm -hmm. no, oh no. But she is able to play that range like through the whole movie. And I'm like, that only Sigourney Weaver could have done that. Uh, I love her. I also wanted her apartment. <laughs> yes. I also wanted to know how much as, as a kid, because I did play the clarinet. I was like, so how much does it pay to be part of the New York Symphony Orchestra so that I could be Dana Barrett? No, <laughs> no, you wouldn't even be. No, wouldn't even you wouldn't be in that place. No, but I don't think I'd even she, be renting the top floor of the firehouse. Yeah, <laughs> unless she had like a I don't know rich uncle. I don't know why is it rich uncle, but somebody left her money or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, she's. I wanted to be her. This is someone that I wanted to be because she's not only because she's living in that amazing apartment and she's in New York and she's more the artist type. But also because the thing with Sigourney Weaver is, and she's kind of unique in this, is that she's so extremely sexy, but she's also, uh, she's not, she's never the damsel in distress. She's got this very strong, uh, strong, um, uh, a strong command of her body. Mm -hmm. Like she uses her body in this very interesting way where she can be very seductive like when mm -hmm. she is possessed and I have to say, I, when I was younger, I loved that red dress. So much. Oh, me too. I was like, that red dress is cool. I'm like, I, want I also, <laughs> I also genuinely thought just... for a long time that she'd just taken like, I don't know, some scarves that she had and just like tied a belt <laughs> around them. I didn't realize that was like a dress dress. I, I thought this was something they were like, Zool was like, yeah, we'll just take some scarves <laughs> and like wrap it around me. It's cool. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But she is so Sigourney Weaver in this kind of role and why she was, you know, such a great final girl because she is, was a final girl in Alien. That is a final yeah, girl was. character. I don't care yes. what you say. Ripley is a final girl. And yes. so she she's able to do the same kind of thing there in Ghostbusters in a way of like, She's still very, very, very sexy, very strong, but she isn't um, relegated to just playing like the love interest. And she's not relegated to just playing yeah. the damsel in distress in this where Bill Murray's character has to come and save her, that kind of thing. It's more she knows who she is. She's strong in who she is, but she still 
she's still able to be, you know, she's still allowed to be sexy. She's still allowed to have, you know, sexuality, which I think sometimes without being objectified. Yes. You never see her boobs Mm -hmm. or her butt. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I I think it's what's important is I think sometimes you will either have a woman can be either the slut or the really smart, nerdy girl kind of thing. And she's neither. And she's just allowed to be who she is. And I think that is a blessing. And I think as a young girl, when you watch that, that's really important too, to see that strong female character who's not going to instantly just be like, oh, save me, save me. And I mean, you know, you could see there, there are instances when that happens, but that's just because she has to be helped. It's not because she is helpless. So there's a total, there's a difference there. And that's why I think she's an important character too. And and she doesn't like, I mean, she approaches them very professionally for help. Like you see her walk into the firehouse and it's like, uh, I think I'm in the right place. I'm looking for the Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see like Peter, like beeline, like leap yes. over the gate, <laughs> go like make sure he's first in line to meet the pretty new lady client. Um yeah, also learned that apparently he nearly missed that jump altogether. And they're, like, they're like, he just almost absolutely ate asphalt. <laughs> like <laughs> trying to jump over that that little gate yeah. there. Um no, I I love her as a as a character in this movie. I think it's again, it's such a great balance, especially considering some of the other female leads that we had in the 80s. She's a very realistic person. She behaves the way I would expect somebody to behave who had this paranormal encounter in her apartment. Somebody who's not a believer, who's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, I had seen the ad, so I'm I'm not making this up. Coming to you guys for help. No, I'm not going to go out with you. No, I'm not going to go out with you. Could you solve my ghost problem, please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's also another outsider in a way that you and that you also need in here too. So yeah, yeah. Well, let's. I'm just only combining these just um, because, but they're the two other little side characters kind of put in here, and that's uh, Louis Tully and Janine. Janine Melnitz. Thank you. I'm like, how do you say Janine Melnitz? <laughs> and of course, I just want to say shout out to Carla because. Louis Tully is played, of course, by Rick Moranis, who is someone that when Carla was younger, this is someone Carla had a huge crush on. So, oh, really? Oh, yes. She loves sweet. Rick Moranis. This is, it's like, and, you know, you follow her, like, this different guy she's had crushes on. It's totally, they all are kind of like this. So, it's really, it's cute. So, shout out to you, Carla. Um, so what are your thoughts on these two, oh, these two, two little side little characters that the movie would not oh. work without too? So no, I, so I, another thing that I have learned about the making of this movie, they originally wanted to, ch- to cast John Candy as Lewis Tully. Oh, I cannot so see that wrong. working. That would have been, been so wrong. wrong. <laughs> it just would not have worked at all. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. I, again, I, I thought as a kid watching this that he was just like a very concerned neighbor i did not pick up that well i think on my first couple viewings as a seven or eight year old that he was really into dana and that he was like trying to go out with him um i love i love this little touch that every time he leaves his apartment he gets locked out 
That's true. He does. I love that they chose to make the neighbor that's like hitting on her and who ultimately gets possessed as well to be this like squirrely little accountant who is clearly a, he must be a good accountant because he, he adds all these funny little touches to the character that make him so endearing. He would have been so easy to write this character off as just, uh, it's some dude down the hall who also gets possessed, who hits on Dana a lot, but he really makes this a whole person. I like, he's an accountant and he has a party, but he invites only his clients because then he can write it off as a business expense. Even thinks like he opens up the door to toss the people's coats on the bed and he doesn't notice the terror dog sitting there on his bed. <laughs> and, who brought the dog? Okay, <laughs> who brought the dog? <laughs> you see that dog and you're like, <laughs> okay, so who brought their dog? <laughs> and as he's running away, he's like, gonna have a very serious conversation with I know. With the, <laughs> with the tennis board definitely says no pets allowed in the building as he's running for his life from a demon terror dog. Yeah. He's still thinking about the tenant's board. It's it's the accountant in him. Yeah, it's the accountant <laughs> in him. And it just works so well. And I just I love like he he makes it to the I, what's the Cavern on the Green, a famous restaurant in the middle of Central Park. And he's banging on the glass for help like help help. And I think this is one of the most New York moments. He's attacked by this demonic creature in front of a crowded restaurant. And everybody in the restaurant is looking at him and watches this happen and immediately turns to go back to their dinner. <laughs> just, it's like, it's just oh, another well. day in New York It's City. just another day in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Happens every other Tuesday. Happens every other day. It's fine. <laughs> um, Annie Potts as Janine Melnitz. Um, she was one that I'm pretty sure that I like would pretend I, I'm sure that I pretended to play Dana Barrett as a kid and I'm definitely sure I pretended to be Janine Melnitz from time to time in our Ghostbusters uh, play as kids um, I love that she is also very much a New Yorker um, in so many like she kind of cemented some of my first ideas about what a New Yorker is um, <laughs> sorry New Yorkers maybe no she's um, cool i think she's, she's cool. <laughs> yeah she was cool there's something very like cool about her um i love that she's like apparently they had initially built out a little bit more of a love story between egon and janine in the original script i loved that she seemed to kind of be like the way i saw it as you know i watched in the movie over and over again was that Janine had a thing for Egon and Egon is too oblivious to notice. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. she's like, I also play racquetball. What are your hobbies? And he's like, I collect mold spores and fungus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she definitely did. She was definitely the one who was first trying to initiate things. And he's just yeah. too caught Oop. up in his, he's too in his brain and his mind. To he, really is. See it. he is. He is. Again, she is her and lewis i feel like if you changed either of those characters if you had somebody different playing them if you had cast somebody that you thought they would have cast like a traditional like quote-unquote hot secretary mm -hmm. like if you had made the neighbor a like 
more traditionally sleazy kind of guy or a you know a handsome person who like maybe Dana would have been considered like would have been attracted to it just wouldn't work there's something about the way that all of them managed to fill these right little comedic niches in the movie and that holds it all together so perfectly as Janine has enough sass that when like she's sitting there not doing any work and they're like Janine any calls and she's like now <laughs> you do it type something we're paying you here <laughs> and she's like I've quit better jobs than this yes I mean she's another line that I've held on to <laughs> yeah I've I've held on to that line I've, I've found myself saying that at times <laughs> before when frustrated at work going I've quit better jobs than this <laughs> well I think I think Annie Potts is kind of an underrated actor in a way oh, and she absolutely. was she did a lot of i mean she was in des- designing women of course but she did a lot of like character roles and of course i i love her in and Pre- pretty in pink love oh, her yes. so much in pretty in pink um and so she is kind of that character actor and so she does mm-hmm. this so well and I don't think it's an insult at all to New Yorkers. I'm not a New Yorker, so maybe it is to think of her as a New Yorker. But she's got like, you know, that's the thing is none of the women in this movie. Well, there are only two women really in this movie. So I guess that's, but the two women in this movie, they are not written. They're not dumbed down and they're not written as like, you know, just a side piece or just there as eye candy. And that is, I appreciate. And it's the same thing with her. Yes, she is this little minor character, but she's very important. And she has a lot of, yeah, and she's she's smart. She's smart and she's funny and she is, um, you know, she's quick. She's quick with what she's going to say. She's not going to take any BS. Uh, She's, I think she's great. And it is funny it. that Egon just takes her flipping ever to realize how much she yeah. likes him because it is like, just like, dude, just, and, but he's just too into his stuff to really notice her. And it's not anything like against her. It's just, he can't, he, he's he just, just so wrapped up. He in just can't little, read those social cues. Yeah. It's just little things. And then he finally kind of, you know, picks up on later, but it's just not really on his um, radar no, at all. Him. And he's not thinking about that. And then um, with Lewis, Lewis falls into an 80s trope in some respects of the geeky, nerdy guy who also is kind of creepy with women. And he is kind of creepy with Dana, I I will say. Mm -hmm. I think he's very – doesn't seem to be taking no for an answer at all. And yes, so is Peter's kind of creepy in that way too. But with this, with Lewis, they always did that where it was like the nerdy guy who like is really creepy with women, but it's actually not creepy. It's funny. And then eventually he'll get the girl. And I know that's not really what happened in this situation, but that's what would happen a lot. And so he's kind of that same character in a way, but he's still really funny and amusing. And you kind of feel bad for him that he keeps getting locked out of his apartment, especially when he gets locked out when he's having a party. And all of the are locked like, out. It's like <laughs> the guests open the door for him. It's like, that's it's, his, his apartment. What's going to let him in? It's another great touch that uh, Sigourney Weaver put in her performance of Dana Barrett uh, that I've only noticed like upon a millionth watch of the movie you notice when she gets like every time she gets to like tully's door she like starts to tiptoe 
Like, yes. oh my God. Like, no. And then like, you see that like little look on her face of like, Shit. he opened the door. Like, how does he always know when I'm coming past the door? <laughs> yes. Which makes you think like, what is he like, got his ear to that or he's looking out his peephole. And he's yeah. Just like waiting, waiting for, for like, does he, he just know her schedule that well? Comes. Yes. Which is creepy as hell. <laughs> that is so flipping creepy because that means he's somehow like, I'm just picturing now he has like this little like chart or he has like a notebook and he took that's really creepy <laughs> but lewis is still kind of like kind of just yeah. he's kind of the fool and the he fool. just accidentally gets involved in all of this and it is still i still yeah. think the funniest part is one of the funniest parts in this movie is the dog part because it's just so hilarious to me of just saying okay who brought the dog and just still yeah, thinking about the <laughs> you're gonna talk to the tenants board i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that when this dog is barreling down on you it's just kind of like <laughs> but it fits it fits with his character and it also fits like maybe like that accountant he's just too busy with the practicality he's just very practical so he's like this doesn't make any sense and pets aren't allowed in the building what is this <laughs> why is this demon dog that's chasing me allowed in the building <laughs> Instead of like, oh shit, I'm going to be killed. <laughs> Instead of that yeah. kind of thinking. Instead of thinking about like, how are you going to bring this up to the board that somebody brought a dog into the apartment? And he is, I, I never appreciated just how quickly he talks and how much of his dialogue is, is improvised mm -hmm. throughout the movie. Like, I, I don't think most of what he says is scripted. He just keeps going. And that's kind of unusual for some of the dirty characters of the the 80s where like it you can tell it's almost like a nervous tick for him like he yeah. sees Dana and he's like by the way you shouldn't leave your your TV on when you leave your apartment so loud and he's like it's okay i turned my tv up really loud too so maybe everybody thought <laughs> like he goes to the party and he's talking about how much he paid for the salmon and it's like hey are you having a good time and like by the way, like that's why I've invited clients and not friends. <laughs> I can do this as all as a write-off, but I only got it for, like it's typically $24.99 a pound, but I actually got it for $14.99 because I know a guy who I did his taxes last year. By the way, they're getting divorced. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like a nervous, it's kind of a nervous tick, I think, for him. Think? It's a nervous tick because he doesn't know exactly, you know, how to fit in. And so but I think so he's funny. probably done that since he was like a little kid. <laughs> it's probably like always been like that. And they're just like, oh, the there's Lewis again. Yeah, like, Blabbing oh, about something. God. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Well, he has he has one of my favorite lines of the second film. And I know we're not getting into the second film, but I uh, his favorite my favorite line. So he goes to night school for as a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen the second movie. He goes to night school and becomes a lawyer. He's the same person as a lawyer as he is an accountant. But he approaches the judge and asks for leniency. And he goes, Because one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and only Rick Moranis could deliver that line and make it that funny and make it work. Yeah, I know. Well, now what I want to, because we already talked about the chemistry and all that stuff and the, the yes. impact, but I want to know your, so your conservative theory for this. Okay. Movie. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let me take you back to 1984. This is under Reagan. Mm -hmm. The conservative, like, body of thought under Reagan-era politics was, it, these are important things for you to keep in mind as we dissect this movie from this lens, which is that, first and foremost, 
private sector commercialism capitalism is good. The private sector can solve problems that the government can't or won't. Second, not only is it good, it is better at it than academia, than government. These are all bad things. Those are bad. Mm-hmm. Those cannot solve the problem. This was a very prominent idea in conservative thinking in the Republican Party, particularly under Reagan era politics. This was kind of like the lay of the land. And this is why I think Ghostbusters is actually the perfect Reagan era conservative dream movie. So we start the movie with ghosts. This is a supernatural pest of a problem that the world is not entirely ready to believe, but is clearly out there. You experience it, you witness it. We start with our characters in academia where they are given no uh, like credit, no like proper, like, well, Ray says that like they give them facilities, but they're clearly not being supported very well. And they're pretty immediately upon actually encountering a spirit you would think in a scientific field, having found concrete proof of the thing that you're trying to prove would be a boon to your university. But within the academic field, they are not producing papers. They are chastised by the dean of the department. Then you are a poor scientist, Dr. Venkman. Because as he points out, he is a terrible scientist. He has bad theories. He's not publishing papers. He's kind of a sleaze with the students. Hence why Venkman Burn in Hell is written on his door. But Immediately, they are thrown out of academia. So Peter sees this as an opportunity because he is one of the good protagonists in this Reagan-era dream film. This is an opportunity. Ray is nervous because academia was steady. Academia gave them a paycheck. Academia gave them facilities. As he put it, we don't have to produce anything. And that there is one of the key, like, remember this, Reagan-era conservative (laughs) dream world. Academia doesn't require that they produce anything. So kind of useless. They go into starting a small business. Small business, conservative backbone of America, right? Okay. <laughs> they take out a loan. They work really hard. They are they are going about this in the proper small business development, pull yourself up by your bootstraps way with a unique business idea to fill a niche that they have clearly found in the market. Now, where's our big villain in this movie? Who has come to shut them down? Who causes all the big problems that end up leading to the disastrous results that culminates at the end of the movie? The EPA. Who is the big slime? Like, sure, Peter Venkman may be a little bit, like, skeevy. Like, he might be a little bit of a slimy salesman. But he is making sales. He is supporting their business. Their business is growing. It is doing great. And who comes along to shut down that profitable business, the EPA? We don't actually get, like, he is painted as the greatest villain in this movie. Um, I also love, this is one of my favorite lines of the movie, when the EPA insists on shutting down the reactor, essentially shutting down their ghost containment system, even though they keep telling him that's a bad idea, that's a bad idea. And if you're watching this from a like conservative, small business is good, government oversight is bad, frame set, like frame of mind, 
absolutely. You just have this, you know, government bureaucrat come in and say a bunch of things about like, we don't know if this is environmentally sound. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. Shut it down. Oh, no. Big explosion. Look at what you did. <laughs> Bad. There we go. EPA. Bad. What happens? All the ghosts come back out into the city. So our small business here who was doing the like good market thing of catching all the ghosts now can't keep up with the problem. And it has become a citywide problem. The city, however, also government can't fix it either. Not only can the city not fix it, the church can't fix it as the uh, bishop comes into the mayor's office and says, if I were you, I'd start praying. <laughs> because the mayor is at his wit's end, and that's when he calls upon our private sector heroes, the Ghostbusters, to come and solve the problem that the big federal government ultimately caused and that the smaller city government cannot fix, the Ghostbusters need to solve. And what do they do? They do solve it. They do save the day. Everybody knows that the Ghostbusters are good. The city was at their very mercy. And that is why this is a conservative movie-like dream world of the 1980s. Wow. That actually <laughs> that actually makes so much sense. Because I know when I was watching when I was rewatching this in the EPA thing again, I was like, what? heck why were they paying the epa so horribly but that actually makes perfect sense and it actually is kind of sad now because like, <laughs> i love this movie and i hated reagan the reagan era politics all that greed is good all that kind of stuff which is <laughs> what that was all about it is. is so icky and gross to me and reagan was such an awful awful human being awful yes. president and so it's like yes. oh my gosh well and now Rebecca has now ruined my childhood. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I so I okay for for those who have you know may not remember me from earlier episodes of this podcast. I actually got my undergraduate degree in film studies, and I actually did not come to this realization until I was in my 20s. And I had done a whole seminar class on actually Cold War era films. Uh, looking specifically at sci-fi and like uh, movies like that of, of like particularly the 50s and 60s but we did get a little bit into the 70s and what that had to say about America's fears about communism and so it was after going through that class that I when I went back to Ghostbusters and having learned then a bit more in my adulthood about exactly what you know life was like under Reagan because again I arrived in 1984 at the same time as this movie. So I have very vague memories of Reagan kind of being president towards the end of my childhood, but I, I can't say that I actually knew anything about Reagan politics or really experienced it as, you know, he was president. Mm -hmm. But then looking, like understanding it then as an adult, I looked back and went, oh man, this really, like, this is really a story of small business private sector like enterprise capitalism good government bad <laughs> like ultimate yeah. story and i'm sorry if it has ruined the movie for you no you no it's just interesting <laughs> because i think because I, well, I was a kid so i wouldn't have picked up on that stuff but I, so no, i think and i don't just, know that it was intentional i don't think it was necessarily intentional by the uh well, the, creators the people who made but, this movie aren't like 
conservative as far as I know or no so it's, I don't so, know that it was done intentionally but I think yeah. there's a reason why it worked so well in the 80s mm-hmm. and I think it's a reason why in like say the remake of the Ghostbusters in 2016 and some I, I haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife I so either. I can't really comment on that one but I think it's why you don't have that like the tone isn't quite the same around the Ghostbusters and particularly their relationship with like the government. It does come up again in the second movie. And in fact, the second movie starts with, oh, the government really screwed us because effectively the city sued the Ghostbusters for all the damage, which wow. I, I have to say is kind of genius <laughs> that they included that because as an adult, I'm like, yeah, you you blew a hole in like, as far as the city's concerned anyway, you blew a hole in an apartment building. Like the streets were cracked. There were buildings yeah. damaged. Like how many car accidents are we like, now responsible for sure they go sue the business and as far as the movie's concerned sued them out of existence and once again the city has to come crawling on their knees to the ghostbusters to save them from a supernatural threat because the government can't handle it wow (laughs) thank you all good night I'm like my mind is just because it make it all makes perfect sense and it you all know, makes sense yes, now. Yes, and it's and also it, why yeah. they they put the EPA. It's also why it works in this time and place mm-hmm. to make the EPA the big bad guy that yeah. comes to ultimately throw a wrench in the works and cause chaos. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would work any other way, and it's it's one of these things that I feel like the movie is just so incredibly well balanced. And it's the the script is tight enough that I think if you if you changed out that Walter Peck for I don't know a building inspector or something it mm-hmm. just doesn't quite work. There's something about the EPA coming in with a sort of and again oh here once again this is trade secret versus this is for public environmental health and good mm-hmm. clash head to head in that first conversation between Walter Peck and Peter Venkman. Where he's like, I need to see the facility. I need to know what it is. I'm worried that you're working with noxious gases or toxic chemicals. And Peter says, no, get out. Like, effectively, those are trade secrets. We can't tell you. And piss off. And he gets mad and comes back with a police officer and some some dude to just, like, pull the switch. (laughs) So this leads to one of my favorite lines of the movie where they're all confronting each other in the mayor's office after the explosion at the firehouse when the power grid is shut down, the, the ghost containment is shut down and all the ghosts are re-released. Uh, in which they're trying to explain to the mayor what happened, why there was this big explosion downtown, why all of these ghosts are now causing havoc all over the city. And Ray says to the mayor, everything was going fine until dickless here shut off our power like shut off the power grid and walter peck goes they caused the explosion the mayor says is this true and peter goes yes your honor it's true this man has no dick (laughs) (laughs) that right there is sort of 80s conservatism whole commentary on regulatory agencies such as the epa (laughs) this man has no dick wow one of them (laughs) 
Okay, You're well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, now, now go back and revisit your favorite 80s films, and <laughs> I will tell you exactly how they fit into the 80s zeitgeist <laughs> and the political and socioeconomic circumstances of the time. Now that you've effectively... Next time, we'll be talking about Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> oh, gosh. Now that you've effectively, effectively ruined my childhood, I am totally kidding. You didn't. But it, I just, that's, it's just so accurate that I'm kind of like, wow. Um, so You're thank welcome. you. Thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. So now we're going to... Think gonna... about these things, though. The next time you rewatch Ghostbusters, pay attention to how, like, yeah. academia first slights them and academia does nothing like even mm -hmm. as they like even as they've clearly proved the existence of ghosts there's no there's no outreach then from the university to be like gee you clearly were right would you like to maybe host a seminar for us would you like to guest teach again nope yeah. they're just out wow yeah, yeah no very true so uh -huh. okay well on that note <laughs> <laughs> on that note no, that was really interesting. So, <laughs> and I know Rebecca's not playing, but we're, it's time for six degrees of Finn. And I know I want to apologize. I know I said that I would have the intro song for this segment by the beginning of September. That obviously didn't happen <laughs> since this is airing on September 30th is when we're dropping this episode. So this obviously hasn't happened. It's because I just have to find the music. The lyrics were written a long time ago by Carla. Carla is going to be singing this song. I've heard some of it like, it's not fantastic. It's fantastic. I know that's one of the lines. So we will have an intro song. <laughs> and, you know, Finn, you never contacted me. You never, you know, about singing this with Carla. So, you know, you're out of luck. Um <laughs> and you missed an opportunity, Finn. <laughs> I know. Uh, to sing a song about yourself. Uh, <laughs> but it is time to play degrees <laughs> of Finn Whitrock. So I used Bill Murray. And Bill Murray was in Zombieland with Woody Harrelson. So, you know, spoiler there. I, you know, that was for a long time. You weren't supposed to know that Bill Murray was in Zombieland. That was the spoiler for that movie um, with Woody Harrelson, who was in mi the film Midway with Aaron Eckhart, who was in My All-American with Finn. So that's the first time we have used that movie uh, ever. Go listen to my appearance on my podcast, Brain Twin Jen's podcast, my streaming bubble where we did the whole episode about Finn Wintrock to get all of my opinions on this movie, my all American. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. I love you, Finn. Uh, but if you want to play the listener version of Six Degrees of Finn Wintrock, the films and and shows will be changing here soon because we update it every month. But head on over to our website. It's a fandomthingpod.com. Go to the page titled Six Degrees of Finn Wintrock. And submit your guesses to how Finn is connected to the movies and shows listed there for a chance to win some merch. And um, also remember that all of the ones we list there are movies or television shows that we have covered on the podcast. And I always put links there so you can go listen to the episode if you haven't already. Okay, well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for ruining my childhood. <laughs> Thank you for I'm joining. I'm sorry. I thought that was really interesting. So thank you so much for joining me for this, this conversation. And who knows, maybe next year we'll tackle the second one and maybe we'll continue this on. All depends. So if you want to hear us do that, share this episode. Tell us some other, I know we have a lot of Gen Xers and millennials that listen to us. 
So tell us any other 80s and 90s films you want us to cover. Like oh, I've yes. said before, we are starting a new segment that um, will be in April of every year. We are going to cover, you know, four Gen X movies. So remember, you can let us know what movies you want us to cover. But we'll also be sprinkling in throughout time other 80s classics such as this one that we just covered. So thank you again, Rebecca. So if you want to tell everybody where they can find you, if you want them to find you. I mean, you could find me and tell me about how I'm actually wrong and you think that <laughs> Ghostbusters is actually a liberal utopia. Um, at Twitter, at Rebecca Jacobson, or on Instagram, at Rebecca Love 545 There's a story behind that name, and it's a long and complicated one. <laughs> but... I don't check those a lot, but I'd be happy to hear from you. And maybe I'll use them more if y'all do. There you go. Give give her a reason to use them. Give more. me a reason. <laughs> give me a reason to use Twitter. Come at me with your theories about Reagan era, you know, politics and Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes, yes. Give her that. So, uh, and this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at E April Beauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod, no it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. On TikTok at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, if you'd like to be a potential interview guest on the show, feel free to reach out and reach out to us via our website. It's a fandomthingpod.com. Click the contact us button there. That'll shoot me an email. But we are gonna have our horror trivia event will be coming up. And if you would like to have some panelists. Or some guest podcasters, if you would like them to play on your behalf as well, like we will be giving out, if you choose your player, that's how we're going to do it. If you choose your player during that night's trivia and they happen to win, one of you will get some prizes. So if for Choose me. (laughs) Choose the form of the destructor. So, for instance, say Rebecca was on our 80s horror trivia night, and you think Rebecca will know all the answers to all the trivia, so you pick her as your player. You choose her to win. You bet that she, you're not going to bet money, by the way, because we can't do that, but you are choosing her as the one that's going to win. Well, then you let us know, and if she does win the trivia for that night, you could win some prizes, like some of the stuff that was donated to us from 5280. So if you're in Colorado, go check out that store. Another shout out to them. So we'll give you more information about that. That'll be up on our website too soon because that's coming um, since this is dropping on the 30th. It's coming basically in a week. The first night is on October 8th. And so speaking of that, we also are going to be all horror very soon here. So let me just give you a rundown yes. of what we're covering in October So first, we're going to be covering Asian horror, and then Guillermo del Toro, and then we are covering vampires, and I loved the look on your, Rebecca, that was adorable. She got very excited about that. Um, (laughs) We're going to be talking about vampires and sexuality is mainly what we're going to focus on there. And then there is a certain film that is turning a certain age that I don't want to admit, and that's The Lost Boys. And so we are going to be talking about The Lost Boys. And then we are going to be talking about Child's Play. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Final Destination series. We're going to be talking about the Purge series. I don't care. I love those movies. I know they're trash. I love them. 
And then we're going to be rounding it out with talking about horror films that focus on cults, such as Midsommar, um, such as go watch this amazing movie called The Invitation. So, yes, that one's so good. Oh, good. Somebody else has watched that. I've recommended this movie so many times. So I good. love that movie. It's so, it is so good. It's so creepy. The ending it's is creepy. so creepy. I'm not going to tell so you. Creepy. You have to go watch it's it. A, it's a nice, like, slow burn. It's yes, good. It's good. It, it's very good. So those are just a couple of the ones that will probably come up. So, yep. So keep an ear out for that. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate.